By late November 1868, Sheridan's campaign of converging columns was coming to hand differently than he anticipated, and the problems began to mount. The 19th Kansas Volunteer Cavalry was somewhere to the east, near starvation, and still a week away from reaching Camp Supply. Carr's Fort Lyon column became diverted by winter conditions 200 miles to the northwest and would only march on December 2nd. Evans' Fort Bascom column was 200 miles to the west. Having departed Fort Bascom on November 18th, they floundered eastward along the North Canadian River in blizzard-like circumstances and would only enter the objective area on December 15th. Ever the man of major, Sheridan indeed perceived that the aggressive Custer would be more likely to run down the Indians than the slow, wary Sully. The approach of Colonel Crawford and the Kansas Regiment had prompted Sully, a regular Army Lieutenant Colonel, to issue orders assuming command of the expedition under his brevet rank of Brigadier General. Custer, of course, immediately pointed to his brevet of Major General. Sheridan mediated in Custer's favor. The commanding general ordered Sully back to his headquarters with the narrowly consoling reason that the expedition was leaving the district of the Upper Arkansas. Captain Frederick Benteen writes the following in his journal on the evening of November 22, 1868. Considerable snow fell last night and sleet alternates with snow and rain today. I hear this evening that General Sully has been relieved and will start northward toward Fort Harker with the train in the morning. The 7th Cavalry will march southward tomorrow at 6 a.m. with a month's supplies in search of the Indian villages. Reveille to be at 4 a.m., two hours before daylight. The officers, who are junior to him in rank, propose to raise $1,500 for Captain Gillette if he will resign. He is a confirmed inebriate, and all are anxious to get rid of him. Wild West Podcast proudly presents The Trail to the Washita. First Day, November 23, 1868. Departure from Fort Supply. On November 23, 1868, Custer ordered Reveille sounded at 3 o'clock. The troops of the 7th Cavalry stumbled out of the warmth of their sleep into the snow and the dark. Each man moved about to the stables and mess, and sundry jokes passed about even at roll call. Everybody was uncomfortable, but nobody was complaining. A snowstorm began as if by pent-up divine rage. Flurries of white cascading from clouds of heaven-spun silver. Yet while it roared, sudden as it was, strong as it was, sounding for all the world as if it was right overhead, several of the seven thought they might go up in the air on our way to meet the omen of the gods. Yet of the many who cared least of all was Custer. He had told General Sheridan that he would be ready to move out in 24 hours. The overnight loading of the wagon train with 30 days of supplies was completed, with only a few tents being allowed. Custer had ordered a light wagon load for travel, and the supply officers stripped down the baggage in the minimum of blankets and overcoats. The following are rewritten excerpts from Edwin L. Sabins on the plains with Custer. The sentries were knee-deep in the snow. 
the horses shivered. The cooks worked diligently to prepare the breakfast. How's this for a winter campaign, demanded the sergeant major, trudging almost over his cavalry boots to the headquarters tent. Acceptably fine, expressed General Custer, peering out of his tent. Just what we want. Well, we've got it then. The snow-covered sergeant major confirmed. A golden light on the early morning sun dribbled over the land like crested crystals. The landscape shimmered like a mirror-flecked mosaic in the morning snow. In the array of frozen blooms, where the air kisses the sergeant lungs so coolly, he ordered the bugler to sound boots and saddles. The blizzard tipped his balance of emotion from adventure to caution. The sound of the bugle filled the air without effort, like the waves echoing in a valley. The sound rushed in and around every sleeping person in the camp. The note set the cavalry into action, four tents were thrown open, and officers, men of the infantry, and volunteers fritted out their heads. Custer, on a horse, galloped across the white mounds of snow-covered landscape to the tent of General Sheridan. Is that you, Custer? What do you think about the storm? The words of General Sheridan issued inaudibly, but directly into the driving flakes. Just the thing, General, Custer answered so spiritedly. We can move, but the Indians can't. I'd ask nothing better than a week of this. Goodbye, old fella. Take care of yourself. Lieutenant Taylor, an aide, called from the door of his tent as General Custer galloped back. Wrapped in a vast buffalo robe, Lieutenant Taylor looked like a chief. The general waved at him. To horse, shouted Custer. The troopers, misty in the storm, stood ready. Prepare to mount, was shouted the order. Mount, by fours, right. Ford, march. All along the lines of tents, hands waved and voices called out goodbye and good luck as the 7th Cavalry rode in columns of fours. Eleven companies, eight hundred men, pressed against the storm and the Indians. Bravely blared the band playing The Girl I Left Behind Me. Custer wore a trapper-style round wolf fur cap with ear tabs, fur mittens, and on his feet, great buffalo hide overshoes with hair inside. His double-breasted cavalry overcoat kept his body warm. Custer's entire command dressed in any fashion that would be comfortable. California Joe was well-equipped in his customary style, with an old slouch hat tied down scoop shape. On his hands were enormous buffalo hide mittens, and on his feet, hide shoes like the general's. The Osages, mounted as scouts, sat stiffly with their buffalo robes hurling above and behind their heads. Hard rope shivered and shuddered and muttered plaintively. Custer, hearing hard rope's mumbling, leaned over and asked the interpreter, What's he saying? He says it's immoral for an old man to be unaided in cold weather, and he will capture a Cheyenne squaw to keep his back warm, explained the interpreter. But the scouts were soon out of hearing range as they moved forward and out of sight. Custer instructed them to take the advance and read movements and guide the column to the next camping place. After the Osage scouts departed, Custer and his long column trailed after them with snow-covered troopers and horses, 
the baggage wagons toiling at the rear. Facing into the southern winds and behind the wagons rode the guard troop. The sleet came as if winter was in a complaining mood, ready to evolve the fluid man or the harsh beauty of crystalline snowflakes. The scouts knew where the route to the hostile war party was and where they crossed, but the snow obscured it and all of the landmarks. The snow continued to fall until after the 15-mile march, which required all day. The column went into camp, and the chill white mantle was 18 inches thick. The march was south, up the valley of Wolf Creek. Patches of willows and timber were full of deer, elk, and buffalo driven there by the storm. The troopers watched as the general's staghounds had fun chasing the wild game, and the column secured plenty of wild game along the way. As the day wore out, the weather became warmer. The troops witnessed large, fluffy snowflakes fall lazily from the gray, overcast sky. Fortunately, there was no wind to drift the snow to add to their discomfort. The snow melted on their clothing so that every living thing was wet to the skin. The snow thickly clumped on the feet of their shod animals, causing much floundering and adding to the horse's travel fatigue. The following are rewritten excerpts from Edwin L. Sabin's On the Plains with Custer. is it, Joe? Cleared off, hasn't it? invited Custer, as on a short tour of inspection in the gray of the afternoon, he encountered that worthy. Yep, traveling's good overhead today. Good afternoon, sir, answered the ready Joe. And I've got an infernal chronicle cough that's been nigh scuttling me for two days, and I've been thinking that I cotched the glanders. They might as well shoot a feller to once as have that bothering him. Sorry, Joe, laughed Custer. Wolf Creek was reached and crossed that afternoon, and the column turned west up its right bank. The first camp, established about 15 miles from Camp Supply, Custer noted that the short march through deep snow had fatigued the horses more than the ordinary day quota of 30 miles. At camp, the troops collected wood from the fallen timber along the creek bed. Soon, fires were blazing, and the company cooks prepared the troopers' supper. The aroma of hot coffee settled in the rhythm of the day while restoring the warmth in the men, and despite the uninviting weather, spirits were high. Lieutenant Godfrey wrote in his 1928 Reminiscences, About two o'clock, the regiment came to Wolf Creek, crossed to the right side of the valley, and continued to march till we came to a clump of fallen timbers and there went into camp with our wagon train far behind. When the horses were unsaddled, everyone except the holders gathered fuel for fires. The valley was alive with rabbits, and all messes were supplied with rabbit stew. Our rawhide-covered saddles were soaked. The unequal drying warped the saddle trees, which subsequently caused the bane of cavalry many sore backs. Snow 18 inches on the level, distance marched about 15 miles. Second day, November 24th. 
The snowfall ceased during the night. The sun rose on the 24th with clear skies and with warmer weather. The sky, a perfect protecting dome, played with the sunlight on this day and gave promises to be the canvas of the regiment. To each man who looked over the snow-covered plains before they stretched to the infinite, the rolling hills and a bright blue showing hope for a warmer journey. On the morning of November 24th, the 7th Cavalry Regiment continued up the south side of Wolf Creek. Although it was a clear day, the deep snow and tributary crossings slowed the advance. The snow melted rapidly. The glare of the bright sunshine caused much discomfort and several cases of snow blindness. During the march, the men killed a few buffalo and rabbits while they glimpsed upon a few deer. As the regiment approached the summit of the divide, the peaks of the Antelope Hills loomed up and became the marker for the rest of the day. They made camp late that evening on a small stream about a mile from the Canadian. The day's march had been tedious. The melting snowballed on their shot animals' hoofs during the long pull up the divide. Several horses and mules gave out, and brought in late that night. Wood was very scarce. The quartermaster sergeants loaded some wood for the cook wagon along the march into camp. The regiment camped on Wolf Creek. The distance marched on the second day was about 16 miles. Barnett's left the best description of the terrain in his journal. Teams had to be doubled at a sandy crossing. High peaks off on our right. Sand hills on our left, all along the stream. After marching 16 miles up the bank of the Middle River, Wolf Creek, in a southeasterly direction, I went into camp in the woods. Third Day, November 25th The regiment broke camp on November 25th, leaving the Valley of the Wolf and crossed over the Valley of the Canadian for a day's march southward. This was the third day. Custer and his cavalry were 60 miles into the Indians' own country, where white cavalry never before had been. Custer's scouts had not crossed the trail in the snow of any parties of the Southern Plains tribes moving south to winter haunts. He decided to turn south towards the South Canadian River and the Antelope Hills, from which he could scout the upper Washita River. Around about stretched the snowy wilderness of plains and watercourse. It was time that some trace of the Indians be found. Beyond the Canadian lay the country of the Washita River, where everybody believed were the winter villages of the hostile Indians. The 7th Cavalry troops wondered how many Indian encampments they might find. All questioned what tribes might be included. Would they find the Cheyennes, Kiowa, Comanche, and Apaches there snugly encamped until the call of spring? Bornitz wrote that the command moved out southerly and reached a campsite after dark. He noted, We marched all day over the great divide between the Middle River, Wolf Creek, and the Canadian. About dusk, we crossed a tributary of the Canadian, and after marching about two miles further, we reached and encamped on the north bank of the Canadian. Fourth day, morning of November 26th, Thanksgiving Day. On the morning of November 26th, 
Custer sent Major Joel Elliott and three companies on a scouting expedition up the north bank of the Canadian in search of tracks in the snow. Major Joel Elliott, a Civil War veteran, never did things by halves and was given three troops to scout along the Canadian. An experienced cavalry officer, Elliott knew war's perils and fought in engagements at Shiloh, Perryville, and Stones River. He was wounded twice, once left for dead when shot through the lungs at White Station. During that time, he served under the command of General Andrew Jackson Smith and Colonel Frederick William Benteen. Elliot's orders were to travel light, with 100 rounds of carbine ammunition to the man, one day's rations, and horse forage. Custer told Elliot that when he discovered an Indian trail, he would pursue it presently and send back a courier with the news. Custer expressed to Elliot that every integrity exists on a scope with vice at either end. Bravery sits between cowardice and foolhardiness. In danger, you should reassess, take time, and move to glory, which is a brave choice. This exception is the right choice for you, Elliot. May God speed. Bornitz was with Elliot, whose narrative provided an account of the scouting expedition. The detachment had traveled only about three miles before the scouts found a trail near the recently abandoned campsite. Returning to the Canadian, they found another, fresher trail a mile further up. The horse riders crossed the Canadian and rode up across the divide between the Washita and the Canadian. On the move from their raids on Kansas settlements, the dog soldiers glistened with war paint, adorned in fighting raiment carrying remnants of their raiding party. Some had cloth bags full of food, and some had scalps taken from the Kansas settlers as punishment for invading their lands. Each bore a riding whip around his wrist. Trappings of fur, bracelets of silver, and marvelous feathered headdresses, buffalo rib bows made by skillfully bending the ends of two ribs with buffalo hide thongs, as neatly and firmly as a blacksmith might have forged welded his metals, proved the existence of Cheyenne mechanical skills. Though they still carried bows, arrows, shields, lance, war clubs, and tomahawks, the Indians had dealt with the traders for more deadly weapons. The raiding party was well armed with 45 caliber Colts and Winchester rifles, and Grand Spencer carbines were everywhere. Some had Sharps rifles. They moved quickly along the snow-covered trail, anxious to evade the Army's pursuit deep into Indian country promised to them by the Medicine Lodge Treaty. When they reached the Canadian, one party crossed and went down the river, each group wishing to go directly to the village they belonged. Here they would retreat safely in their lodges to wait out the winter and return to their raids in the spring. Bear Shield decided to camp five miles below Antelope Hills, with his nine-foot lance adorned with an eagle feather and tipped with a steel point of 18 inches. At sunrise the following day, they heard shooting up the river. A member of their party named Wood, speaking Cheyenne, said, One of you men, go see what you can see. As he pointed to the crest of a nearby hill, those guns sound like soldier guns. No, replied Red Nose, showing a hand sign, waved vertically across his chest. It is no soldier gun. It is the other dog soldiers. 
They have stopped to kill buffalo and are killing some. Bear Shield and his party quickly moved on and reached the village on the Washita by nightfall. Meanwhile, Custer sought a suitable crossing in the Big Bend around the Antelope Hills. Since daylight, California Joe had been beating up and down the banks, seeking a crossing. He's a dramatic character in the scene on the bank of the Canadian that winter morning as he dashes here and there on his favored mule. His long black hair falls in a tangled mess over his broad shoulders. His stout brown beard is flared over his breast by the morning breeze. He wears a military coat, a wide-brimmed black sombrero, and high-top boots. In his mouth is a short-stemmed pipe from which he draws and casts miniature shadows of smoke. He's a typical of the trapper-scout frontiersman of the plains. After many trials, California Joe found the ford, and aiming for the Washita, proceeded to cross the horses and wagons through the floating ice of the swift current. There was high water in the Canadian River that morning. It is a treacherous, villainous river full of quicksands and holes. The bed is a vast waste of fine sand. Usually, a tiny stream of water winds and twists through this waste, while the winds drift the sands in ever-moving windows where the water does not flow. As the waters rise, these sands are saturated, cohesion is broken up, and they become treacherous quicksand. Woe to man or beast that rests feet upon them. As a horse's feet sink in the quickly yielding surface, the impact drives the water out of the sands while washing them around the feet, where packing and settling occur. He tries to pull one, then another out of its vice-like grip. He struggles, flounders, and falls. Unless he has man's help, he will never rise. While the main command and wagon train forded the rising ice-choked river, Custer climbed the highest hill in the group, about 300 feet above the plain, to survey the country and await a report from Elliot. Custer watched below as the men waded waist-deep in the river. The water was cold and the work was mean. The cold water seeped into their shoes, stealing the heat from their bodies. In this icy water, the frigid cold became the nemesis of the long march ahead. After three hours of the downstream crossing completed, the command began the long climb out of the bottoms, bringing the wagon and troops onto the level plain east of the hills. The high round antelope hills loomed ahead. These landmarks of the march, Little Beaver and Hard Rope, and their followers had struck them exactly. Up the further slope of the Canadian Valley toiled the hooded, heavy army wagons. From a little knoll, the general had been surveying and directing, watching the rear guard finally cross below. For this, they were waiting. Jack Corbin rode up with news that two large Indian trails, one less than 24 hours old and reflecting use by as many as 150 warriors, had been discovered 12 miles distant, heading south-southeast, across the Canadian, from Major Joel H. Elliott's position. Custer sent Corbin back on a fresh mount with instructions for Elliott to stay on the trail and notify him of any change of direction. 
The following are rewritten excerpts from Edwin L. Sabin's On the Plains with Custer. Custer peered through his spyglass from the high ground, surveying the countryside. Seeing no riders from his left, he commanded, All right, sound to the horse. Look, sir, a rider, called out a sentry on guard just below the hill's peak. No, wait, thundered Custer. Here comes somebody. He pointed and leveled his glasses. Down from the north was approaching at a steady gallop, a figure black against a white background. It's Corbin, enunciated Custer, staring earnestly through his glass. His tanned face reddened. Yes, it is Corbin. Jack Corbin, the scout. Look, sir, shouted the sentry. Evidently, he bears crucial news, for he's urging his horse mercilessly upon his arrival. The onlookers watched tentatively as Corbin, with a frosty face, and his horse wheezed through the wide, frozen nostrils. Corbin was considered a dependable and reliable man by Lieutenant Colonel George A. Custer. He was the quiet partner of Moses California Joe Milner, and unlike his friend, he seldom indulged a remark or suggestion unless prompted by a question. Corbin rode up the hill's steep slope on his gray charger, carrying two Colt revolvers in his belt and a sharp carbine. Corbin spoke with a gasp and a salute. Permission to report, sir. Permission granted, replied Custer. We've struck a trail about 12 miles north. A small number of Indians pointing southwest for the Washita, made within 24 hours. It looks like a raiding party split up, possibly dog soldiers on the head to their lodges. Good, responded Custer. Where's Elliot? Follerin'. Can you catch him with a fresh horse? Reckon I can. Take that horse there, directed Custer. Corbin changed saddle in an instant. Tell Major Elliot to push the pursuit as rapidly as possible, and I'll cut across the country and join him. He will let me know if the trail changes direction so that I may not strike it. He will halt and wait for me if I do not join him by 8 o'clock tonight. Without a word... Away galloped Jack Corbin. So busy had been the officers that they had yet to note the arrival and departure of Jack. But now, at the bugle notes, they hastened up, curious to know the occasion. In his quick, sharp manner, Custer told them what had happened. Custer informed his officers that the Indian camps were close, and it was their chance to catch them off guard. He insisted the regiment follow Elliot, as he wanted Major Elliot to do only some fighting. He commanded that the wagons be cut loose and left behind under the guard of one officer and ten men detailed from each company. Custer told the company commanders that they would make up their details. The officer of the day will remain in charge of the guard and bring on the wagons. In haste, Custer ordered the wagons and the officer of the guard to follow their trail as fast as possible. He told the troops of the pursuing column would be in light, marching order, and never to mind the weather. The Indians are of more importance, Custer said. He then told his company commanders to limit the traveling weight of each man to 100 rounds of ammunition and such coffee, hard bread, forage, and blankets that he could carry on the saddle. Custer ordered the tents and extra blankets left behind with the wagons. The following are rewritten excerpts from Edwin L. Sabin's on the plains with Custer. That is all, gentlemen, as Custer glanced at his watch. 
The advance will be sounded in 20 minutes. Adjutant, you will notify the officer of the day as to the arrangements. At once, half a dozen voices spoke in little chorus. That's Hamilton. Oh, we ought to have Hamilton with us. Custer smiled and shook his head. Somebody's duty is with the wagon train. Out scattered the officers, for time was short, and Custer never tolerated excuses for delay. Being the officer of the day in charge of the rear guard, which had just crossed, young Captain Hamilton had been absent from the conference. Learning he may be left behind, he came galloping up beside Custer. "'Excuse me, sir,' interrupting Custer, who had settled into the preparations. Captain Hamilton's face was white and anxious as he saluted. "'Bag your pardon,' Custer exclaimed. "'But do I understand that the officer of the day remains with the wagon train?' respectfully inquired Hamilton. "'Yes, Captain.' "'But, sir, I am an officer of the day.' "'I did not think of it at the time, Hamilton,' frankly replied Custer. "'I simply gave the instructions, and I'm afraid the order must be followed.' "'Sir!' exclaimed the captain. Hamilton was very distressed. "'To stay behind while the others fought would be awful. "'Then I must remain. "'Can't I go, sir?' Custer paused and reflected on when Hamilton became the youngest captain in the regular army— and joined the 7th U.S. Cavalry, how Hamilton was assigned his first command at Fort Lyon, Colorado, in July 1866. He was an able and ambitious troop commander, whom his fellow officers well liked. Now Hamilton wanted to fight. Custer remembered when Hamilton's leadership skills were steady under fire and admirably displayed. While in command of a small detachment during a Hancock expedition, he pursued Pawnee Killer Sioux, averting an Indian ambush by repulsing 45 attacking Sioux near forks of the Republican River. Custer broke his silence and kindly responded, We'd like you with us, Hamilton. We need such men as you. The wagon train must be guarded. Our reserve supplies need an officer. This is a soldier's luck. Your duty is here. It seems pretty hard that I've got to stay, he murmured, dismayed. There's liable to be a big fight, and I won't be on hand to lead my squadron. Custer surveyed him with eyes softening. Indeed, the young captain, high-mettled and soldierly, made a sorry figure. I'll tell you, Hamilton, if you can find an officer who feels convinced that he should stay rather than you for one reason or another, he may take your place. Otherwise, as an officer of the day, your duty is with the train. Captain Hamilton's face lit up. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I'll go and see. And whirling his horse back, he galloped on this forlorn hope. Presently, here he came again. He was pretty shining as he saluted. Lieutenant Matthew, sir. He has snow blindness, so can scarcely see, and would be useless with the column. He has kindly consented to exchange with me. Shall I join my squadron, sir? Very well, Captain Hamilton, approved Custer, and the glad Captain Louis Hamilton, grandson of Alexander Hamilton, went flying to his post. In precisely due time, Custer looked at his watch. He vaulted into the saddle. All ready, Lieutenant Moylan, he called, and to the bugler, sound the advance. <laughs>
By the tracks, Major Elliot was still upon the trail of the village-bound Indians. After reading the pony sign, Little Beaver and his Osages declared from his smoldering fire that the Indians had passed on their way this morning. Much relieved, Custer ordered a trot and forward and pressed the column to overtake the Major. Dusk descended. Before them were visible the outlines of timber along a stream and a little valley. Custer sent ahead a squad of soldiers and scouts to catch the Major and tell him to halt at wood and water and to wait. It was a long, forced march. Wide and white lay the forlorn desert beyond the Canadian, and the eager column plowed through a foot of snow. Not a moving figure broke the white expanse. Not a moving formation, save the figures of California Joe, Romeo, Little Beaver, Hard Rope, and the other scouts. As far in advance and on the other side, they rode seeking the Elliott Trail. Major Elliott followed the Indians headed southeast. A course south ought to strike his tracks sooner or later. Later it proved to be, for not until within an hour of sunset and after a day's ride without halt or food or drink did the column see Little Beaver stop short and with uplifted hand signal a trail. On January 7th at Camp Supply, Ben Teen wrote the following from his notes made on November 25th of his experiences of locating Black Kettle's camp on the edge of the Washita. About midnight, we struck the Washita, and the trail became quite difficult because of the stream's sinuous character, which runs in a deep channel, at which we were obligated to cross and recross very often. Shortly after midnight, we began to discover the traces of teepee poles, which entered the trail from the left and followed down in the direction that we were going. The traces of teepee poles at length became quite numerous, always entering our trail from the left, from which it was obvious that a village, traces of which General Custer had found about 10 miles below our encampment on the Canadian, was moving in the same direction as the war party, which we were following. About two or three o'clock in the morning, just as I was crossing the Washita for perhaps the tenth or fifteenth time, Lieutenant Moylan, the adjutant, rode back and stated that General Custer directed that I should halt my command, and accompanied by Lieutenant March, my lieutenant should report at the head of the column, that the whole valley in front was full of ponies, and that the Indians, from all appearances, were unaware of our approach. A rapid gallop of a few minutes took me to the head of the column, where I found the other officers already assembled or assembling, and as soon as all were collected, General Custer stated that the scouts in advance had reported that the valley in advance was filled with ponies, and that the tinkling of a little bell could be distinctly heard, that he wished us to leave our horses and go quietly with him on foot to the crest of a ridge in front, and carefully study the topography of the country and see what we could make out. He stated that no talking would be done above a low whisper, until our return, when we would deliberate and make plans for the attack. So we all crept very quietly and slowly to the top of the ridge, removing our hats or caps as we neared the summit, and I could not help thinking that we very much resembled a pack of wolves, that if the Indians should discover us, they would very likely mistake us for wolves, and so take no notice of us.
The party with Crowneck went on over toward Black Kettle's village. They struck the Washita about 15 miles above the village, and seeing where the camp had just moved down the river, followed the trail and reached home that night. At the point where they reached the Washita, Crowneck left a worn-out horse, and the next afternoon, thinking that by this time the animal would be rested, he returned to get it. When he had come almost to the place where he had left the horse, he saw something coming over the hills, a long line of people or animals, and being afraid that these were soldiers, he turned back to the village without getting his horse. When he reached the camp, he said to Badman, in whose lodge he was stopping, I believe I saw soldiers going over the hill to the river when I went to get my horse. They were either soldiers or buffaloes at all events. I was frightened and did not get my horse. You will do well to get your horses this afternoon and tomorrow morning to move away. I am afraid that perhaps soldiers are coming. Bad man got his horses, as advised. Crowneck had seen Custer's command marching over from the Canadian to the Washita. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes or wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You can also catch us on Facebook at facebook.com slash wildwestpodcast or on our YouTube channel at Wild West Podcast, Mike King, YouTube. So make sure you subscribe to our shows listed at the end of the description text of this podcast to receive notifications on all new episodes. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you have any comments or want to add to our series, please write us at wildwestpodcast at gmail.com. We will share your thoughts as they apply to future episodes. <laughs>